Hello, and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. My name is Tom Orlick. I'm the Chief Economist for Bloomberg. Now, with England entering a period of national mourning following our defeat in the European Championship soccer final, your regular host Stephanie Flanders is taking a break this week. So, like a young substitute stepping nervously onto the pitch to take a crucial penalty, I'm stepping in to host this week's discussion. Later in the podcast, we'll go to Vietnam to hear about how factory workers are sleeping on the factory floor to keep production humming and the COVID outbreak under control. And here in the US, we'll dive into President Joe Biden's attempts to push back against monopoly power. First though, here in the US, with concern from some parts of the political spectrum that high unemployment benefits are creating a disincentive to work, let's go to Bloomberg's own Olivia Rockman for a report on the real barriers that some women are facing when they try to re-enter the labour market and the human cost when unemployment benefits are withdrawn. America's economy is surging coming out of the pandemic, and some politicians believe it would be doing even better if not for generous unemployment benefits put into place last March. They blame the U.S. government's extra $300 weekly payments to unemployed people for keeping workers at home, and about half of U.S. governors have ended the federal benefits. Still, their efforts to lure workers back into the office aren't working for a key demographic parents of young children and especially mothers. They simply don't have childcare options and can't return to work, regardless of unemployment checks. But there's many nights, like I'll wake up when my mom's getting ready for work and I just start crying because I just, I'm just at a loss anymore. You know, if it wasn't for my mom, but now my mom has to struggle because of us, it's not fair. Colleen Kerr, a single mom in Cleveland, Ohio, whose expanded benefits were cut off in late June, quit her job as a veterinary technician last year when her daughter's child care center closed. Shortly after, the two of them got COVID, and her six-year-old has since been diagnosed with a medical condition that weakens her immune system. Kerr is desperate to go back to work, but her young daughter hasn't been cleared by her doctor to return to school just yet. So I was really counting on this 300 at least until September. I would have been financially okay. You know, I had everything right. planned out, you know, with bills and everything. Now my mom, she had to pick up, she's working like 18 hours a day, you know, to support, cover me, the rent, you know, her, everything. And it's not fair to her. It's like, it's so, it's so hard. And, you know, I want to go back to work. I don't want to sit at home. You know, that was like my time away from my kid, making my money, <laughs> you know, and yeah, 300 a week is nothing compared to what I was making. You know, but at least my head was still above water bringing in that extra 300 a week. I didn't have to really worry too much, you know, but now I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I really don't. We ended up having to move back in with my mom. I, I can't afford to, to live out on my own, support a kid. There was just no way, you yeah, know, totally. I mean, so it was like I was able to give my mom money, to, you know, towards out of this 300 a week, towards the rent, towards the bills. And now it's like, that's why now this is being, this money was taken away. And she's, she's working Monday through Saturday from three 30. Well, she leaves here at what's it, about two in the morning. So she works from two 30 in the morning until three o'clock in the afternoon. And that's not yeah. fair to her. She's 66 years old. Like many of the moms who have left the labor force to take care of their children during the pandemic, Kerr will have to start a fresh job search when she's ready to return to work. 
Labor force participation for American women between the ages of 25 and 54 remains well below pre-pandemic levels. And while some economists expect it to recover when schools more fully reopen this September, it's unlikely to be a rapid bounce back. Job openings are abundant in industries like restaurants and hospitality, but finding something in a more specialized sector, like veterinary medicine, can take months, especially for candidates who have gaps in their resumes. Yeah, I would have to start fresh. I would have to start all over. And are jobs in your industry, you said vet, are they limited in your area? Like, would it be hard to find something immediately? It is hard, um, but hopefully for me, it, I have a lot of connections, so I'm hoping, but it, it's, it's, it's hard to go from one, you know, jumping from one job to another um, because it gets around like, oh, this person's, you know, job happened. I mean, they kind of know my situation right now. But what I did do, I, you know, because I'm a vet tech, I was a non-registered vet tech. And what mm-hmm. I did was when all this started and she had to be enrolled online and I'm like, you know, since I'm going to have to sit home with her, I don't want to just sit home. So I actually enrolled online to school to get my oh, license nice. for it. I wasn't just going to sit around. I need to make money when I, when I go back, you know. So hopefully through school, I'll be able to get a job, but nothing's guaranteed right now. You know, a lot of places are starting to close down because they cannot get the help. Or people just still can't afford it because of this pandemic. A right. lot of people are hurting over here. What really sucks is that I was just offered a job through our city. And I had to pass it up because of everything that's going on. Yep. So, and does it drive you crazy that, like, there's this narrative that, oh, yeah. people are just collecting unemployment and not working. <sighs> and here you are, like, turning down a job. Exactly. And that's what that I, oh, my gosh, I can't even use the words that I want to use. But yeah. Yes. I mean, yeah. because all these people are like, oh, now you guys can't sit around. You have to go get a job. And it's like, you know what? There are truly some people that cannot go back to work right now. By many measures, the U.S. economy has recovered from the initial impact of the pandemic. Retail sales have surged above pre-pandemic levels. Most businesses are open at full capacity. And demand for residential real estate is booming. But the labor market remains more than 6 million jobs short of where it was before COVID. A big question in the coming months will be what the lingering effect of the pandemic will be on workers, and when, or whether, workforce participation will return to where it was in early 2020. Kerr says that while she understands the frustration of businesses having trouble finding workers, there are circumstances that make returning to work much more complicated than just submitting an application. I just wish more people would hear us out, I mean, and really Mm -hmm. see that some of us are struggling, and we don't have that luxury of going back to work. I mean, yeah. some of us want to work. You know, I love making my money. I, I made more money going to work than sitting home. Right. So I just, you know, I wish really somebody would take the time and, and listen and really see, you know, there, there's got to be something that can be done. I know that people are hiring and they're, they're you know, looking for workers. And I, I, you know, I wish I had an answer for that. I don't understand why people won't go back to work. But I just, I just wish they'd figure something out, you know? I mean, yeah. There, there's people that are really struggling, and, it, and it, it really sucks that they did this to us. It really does. Thanks, Olivia Rockman, for that report. And for U.S. economy watchers, it will be interesting to see what happens in September, when augmented unemployment benefits end nationwide, and the reopening of schools lifts some of the constraints on childcare. Now, as the global economy reopens... Another driver of distortions and a contributor to the uncomfortably high inflation we're seeing in the US and elsewhere is supply chain snarl-ups. 
shortages of semiconductors and other crucial components is denting production of cars and other technology-intensive products and sending prices sky-high. Vietnam, with its low wages and strategic location in the East Asian electronic manufacturing hub, has been playing an increasingly important part in global supply chains. Factories and workers in Vietnam are taking some extraordinary steps to make sure production keeps humming through the COVID crisis. For more on that, we go to Bloomberg's Win Win in Ho Chi Minh City. Win, you've been reporting a fascinating story about workers attempting to keep production going and dodge COVID infections by sleeping on the factory floor. Tell us what's going on. Yeah, well, uh, Vietnam is um, fighting against a, a resurgence of COVID-19. So the nation is trying to protect its reputation as an um, important part in the global tech supply chain. So it um, has got an um, innovation with like thousands of workers sleeping on factory floors to keep production lines running. Um, earlier, in the northern uh, provinces of Bangding and Bangsang, two key uh, manufacturing hubs that home to uh, Samsung and Foxconn, Luxshare, those are leading suppliers of Apple. Um, authorities there have asked about, you know, 150,000 workers are living in industrial parks to uh, reduce the risk of infection. And um, recently in the commercial hub of Ho Chi Minh City, about 200 companies have also set up or will set up soon uh, sit over sites for thousands of workers to be able to remain operations. So they are sleeping on either metal uh, bunk beds with um, bamboo mats in, uh, you know, dormitories uh, as well as in tents, in camp camping pens, pitches on cement floors inside the factories. And they're also quarantined until they tested negative after returning from home. Wynne, have you spoken to some of the workers? What's the mood like? Uh, well, I talked to them on the phone because it's quite difficult to get to those factories uh, these days. So um, when I talked to them, most of them are quite um, happy that they can still uh, go back to work because last month their factories got uh, shut down and they have to stay home with almost no salaries. So um, Although sleeping on the floor, uh, kind of, you know, some told some told me that it's a bit difficult uh, to sleep at first, but then they get used to it gradually. And the funny thing is that they have um, air conditioning twenty four hours, <laughs> so it's, it's also better than uh, living outside at home. They don't have that kind of um, air conditioning. And uh, in the factories, they they share rooms and share bathrooms, but they feel quite safe inside though. So, is the strategy working, containing the virus while allowing production to continue, or are we already seeing more outbreaks? Well, that strategy uh, seems really helpful with, you know, at least the two uh, northern provinces of Bangzai and Bangling in uh, uh, near Hanoi help them to contain the virus spread and the number of new COVID cases falling down every day. And uh, more areas in the two provinces that now got removed, lockdown or social distancing rest restrictions. And uh, most of the companies, most of the factories there are now able to reopen. Yeah, it looks like it's, it works. Wynne, throw this forward for us. How long do you think these extraordinary measures will have to stay in place? 
the government is trying to uh, accelerate its vaccination program. Right now, it uh, has vaccinated about 4% of its population of uh, 98 million and is trying to reach about 75% of its population by early next year, 1Q next year. Um, until then, there may be more factories will have to uh, do the same I uh, arranging for their, fact- their workers to sleep in the factories to keep the production line um, running. Like earlier this week, authorities in Minh City just um, ordered companies in a high-tech park where Samsung and Intel has uh, factories to set up, to arrange and set up on-site sleeping accommodation for their workers. I think that they are going to get out of this, but it would take them time to get back to where it was before. Thanks very much to Bloomberg's Win-Win for bringing us that story. Well, remarkable efforts there by workers in Vietnam sleeping in their factories to keep production going. Think about that the next time you pick up your smartphone. Now, let's return to the US, where a growing area of concern for progressive economists and lawmakers is the lack of competition in the economy. The growing concentration in market power with a shrinking number of firms grabbing a growing share of profits is bad for workers, bad for customers, bad for startups and, in the end, bad for the dynamism of the economy as a whole. It's a tough problem to deal with, but the Biden administration has made a down payment on a solution with an executive order aimed at boosting competition. In a moment, we'll hear from Professor Morris Stuckey, an expert in competition law. But before we do that, let's speak to Bloomberg's own Anna Edgerton. Anna covers the technology beat here in DC, and of course it's the giant tech companies, Amazon, Facebook, Google and Apple, that are in the sights of the antitrust regulators. Anna, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. First of all, tell us what's in this executive order. This is a pretty broad executive order that looks at not just technology, but industries across the economy and how federal agencies can use their power to write rules and regulations that would encourage competition. Now we're talking about things like transportation, healthcare, agriculture, airlines. There are a lot of industries that could be affected by this order. So pretty sweeping. And what's the motivation for the Biden administration? Well, this is another indication about you know, kind of the antitrust movement in Washington. We see a lot of energy on Capitol Hill trying to strengthen antitrust laws. We also see Lena Khan, a, a notable antitrust expert, appointed to head the FTC. And this is kind of the Biden administration part of that, you know, to, show, to show an all-of-Washington approach to encouraging competition across the economy. What's interesting about the Biden executive order is this is something that Biden can do unilaterally. You know, he doesn't have to uh, negotiate a bill getting through Congress in order for this to take effect. That limits how effective it could be and that it could be undone by a future president. But coming this early in the Biden administration, it should give his federal agencies plenty of time to implement these rules to make potentially significant changes in the economy. An executive order limited in impact, potentially reversible by a future administration, uh, but still a down payment on addressing this serious concern. Could you give us an example of something that will change as a result of this executive order? Yeah, there's an interesting movement for the right to repair. I thought this was one of the really interesting parts of the executive order. And this is, this element would require 
manufacturers of farming equipment, for example, to allow farmers to repair their own uh, tractors and uh, you know high tech equipment. It would also have implications for consumer electronics, you know, especially uh, uh, users of Apple products. When you know, your iPhone breaks and you want to take it to a local repair shop, a lot of times that's not possible with this really complicated technology. So one thing this executive order would do is to require manufacturers to allow independent repair people to repair their products. And that gives consumers a lot more choice in how they use and uh, kind of prolong the life of their of the things that they own. But it's something that manufacturers have pushed back on. That's so interesting. I have a drawer at home which is entirely full of redundant electronic equipment. And I've always suspected that the manufacturers are deliberately building in obsolescence after a couple of years uh, to force me back to the shops to buy the latest edition. I'm glad to see that my intuition was close to the truth. Um, I got you. <laughs> so um, the executive order has to be followed by legislation for this sort of broad strategy to work. Um, what should we expect there? Is there a bill passing? In the, is there a bill in the works in Congress? Yeah, there's a few interesting fronts on the antitrust uh, battle in Congress. In the Senate, antitrust subcommittee chairman uh, Amy Klobuchar has introduced her own proposal, as has her ranking member Mike Lee, the ranking Republican in the Senate committee. And in the House, we see. Um, tech-focused legislation from uh, Representative Cicilline, Democrat from Rhode Island, and Representative Ken Buck, a Republican from Colorado, that would really take aim at four technology companies. This is Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google. And these bills are bipartisan and would limit the way that these companies can present their own products. You know, in some cases would prohibit them from having those products in the first place if they compete with third-party companies that depend on their platform. You know, there's kind of different levels of seriousness of this legislation and kind of a different chance that it has of actually becoming law. Right now, as it's written, it doesn't look like these bills have a very good chance of becoming law in this Congress. But the fact that we're getting bipartisan support for these measures shows that there is a lot of anger on both parties at just how concentrated the economy has become and how hard it is for small businesses and um, different companies to compete in, in industries that have become very consolidated. Anna, thanks so much for your insights. Thanks so much. Well, Anna gave us the what's happened and some of the what's next for a little bit of the why it happened and is it enough. Let's go to Morris Stuckey, a professor at the University of Tennessee former prosecutor at the U.S. Department of Justice and co-author of the recent book, Competition Overdose. Professor Stuckey, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Now, in your book, you make the argument that competition in and of itself isn't a good thing. What's needed is more positive sum competition. You call it noble competition, which expands the size of the economic pie, and less toxic competition, which drives a race to the bottom in standards and risks gouging workers and consumers in the process. Is the Biden executive order going to move the U.S. closer to having the right kind of competition? It is. So you have two problems right now. The healthy, noble type of competition is being squeezed out. And so you have unhealthy competition, toxic competition on one hand, and then too little of the good types of competition on the other. So what this uh, proposal seeks to do is two things. First, bring more of the healthy competition. And then second, go after some of the 
exploitative competition, where we talk in our book about trip pricing. So here, for example, the airlines, they can't dangle a low price in front of you and then have all of these add-on fees as you go through the process of booking a flight, which I think in the UK and many other jurisdictions is prohibited, but not in the United States. So my reading of the literature, Professor, is that one of the reasons why antitrust regulation um, has become weaker over the last decades um, is because of a shift in the sort of the legal philosophy back in the days of Louis Brandeis and the trust busters of the early 20th century, there was a focus on market structure and how excessive concentration of market power could be bad for consumers. But from the 1970s, with the rise of the Chicago School, there was a shift in view. Um, and the new kind of antitrust philosophy takes a much narrower conception of what's bad for consumers. Uh, and in fact, holds that as long as prices are coming down, there can't be any problem with competition. Could you give us a very brief review of that transition from market structure to prices as the lens for, through which the courts interpret competition policy and talk about some of the effects that that's had? Sure. So the problem is that without any legislative change, the Supreme Court incorporated the work of Bork and other the Chicago School theorists and looked at antitrust through this consumer welfare lens. And the promise was that it would make markets more competitive and would bring greater certainty to antitrust law. And it's failed on both measures. So what you now see is that courts can say, well, competition can be reduced so long as it doesn't harm consumer welfare. And the only way to measure that is through pricing. And that's really not applicable in the digital platform economy. The other problem with the consumer welfare lens is that it misses over half the picture. You don't really see the impact that mergers can have on workers and their wages. You don't see the impact that these mergers can have on farmers. Um, and, and you see this in the Biden order, is that a lot of the harm has also happened upstream, where consumers are being squeezed in their wages or the prices that they may pay because farmers are also being squeezed as a result. So does the executive order now mean that the Federal Trade Commission and other agencies have the space they need to rewrite the rules and engineer more of the right type of competition? Or, in the face of sceptical courts, do we fundamentally need new legislation? Right. Well, you really need both. Uh, one thing is both uh, the Republicans and the Democrats in their separate reports in Congress on the digital platform economy have voiced concern that the courts have gone too far in clamping down on antitrust. So now the agencies as well and the um, are, are raising that same concern. And the courts have to listen because they're there to interpret the law and not their gloss that they added to the law, including this consumer welfare standard. And in particular, it's the Supreme Court that is the primary culprit here because it infrequently visits antitrust, but when it does, it really makes a muck of things. So one thing is that the courts should listen and have a little bit more hubris. 
But the other thing in what you see is going on in Europe, um, particularly with the Digital Markets Act, the Digital Services Act, and Germany in upgrading its competition law, and the UK likely doing the same, is that we need new tools to tackle some of the problems in the digital platform economy. And antitrust is often too slow, takes way too much time, and the outcomes are too unpredictable. So we need greater certainty. Market participants should be able to know what is expected of them. And when there is a violation, it can be quickly redressed. And for that, we need statutory reform. So it sounds like the Biden executive order is an important first step, but we also need a change of heart by the courts, action by regulatory agencies, and ultimately legislation to move the US economy more towards that noble competition, uh, which Professor Stuckey writes about in his book, Competition Overdose. Uh, Professor Stuckey, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Well, the Stephanomics team have given all they can, but in the battle to answer all the economics questions, the best result we can hope for is a draw. So as extra time on the podcast draws to a close, it only remains for me to thwack the ball of economic analysis into the wooden upright of incomprehension, and then, head in hands, thank our contributors, Olivia Rockman, Win Win, Anna Edgerton, and Professor Morris Stuckey producer Mike Sasso, and sound engineer Magnus Henriksen. Please join us next week when your regular host, the eponymous Stephanie Flanders, will be back and normal standards of economic insight and humour will be restored.